talking to Sam Fromars, the founder and editor at the Food and Environment Reporting Network. We talk about the future of journalism, his love of bread, and the Me Too movement. Please enjoy the show. everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nirenberg. Uh, today, I get to talk to one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Sam Fromartz, the co-founder and editor of the Food and Environment Reporting Network, or FERN. Uh, FERN has won two James Beard uh, Journalism Awards and countless other awards. Um, Sam has worked for Reuters and written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. He is also the author of the book Organic Inc., Natural Foods and How They Grew. And most recently, a few years ago, the book In Search of the Perfect Loaf, A Home Baker's Odyssey, which is uh, an amazing book about, obviously, bread, one of my favorite food groups. Um, Sam lives in Washington, D.C., where I first met him, I think maybe almost 10 years ago now. And um, he uh, is just a great... Uh, person to to talk to about food and, and and knows a lot. So Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a pretty brief bio. Do you want to add anything to it? Uh, no, you got you you hit all the major points. I, I'll, I'll just add though, it, it probably came a little late, but we won our third uh, James Beard Award. Nice. First story we did. That's yeah. fantastic. That's great. I'm sorry I missed that on your bio. I should have yeah. known. Um. <laughs> So one of the things that I've been doing with the, the folks that I interview uh, on the podcast uh, is asking them sort of their favorite food memory. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, you and I are friends on Facebook and I've seen a lot of posts about pizza recently. And I know you have a love of bread. But what's your favorite food memory? Um, so I grew up in, in New York and my mom is Japanese American and my dad is uh, Jewish. Uh, and so um, I think the, the strongest memories I have really revolve around um, eating fish. Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, we used to go out to Long Island when I was growing up. And um, what kind of fish are we talking about? Well, my mom introduced us to like sushi when we were kids before sushi was like, you know, hip. <laughs> right at every airport. <laughs> yeah. At that time in New York, and this would be in the 60s, um, we, she would take us to Japanese restaurants where only um, the only people for the most part were Japanese businessmen and their families. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you, could get su- you could get sushi, but it was really this great exotic, you know, it, it was viewed by others, obviously, as, you know, this exotic kind of food. And it wasn't celebrated. It wasn't widely eaten. But I kind of grew up eating it, um, although you know didn't eat didn't eat all of it as a kid. Um, and then we also ate a lot of seafood out on Long Island, uh, where we had a summer house. So um, you know, so I have pretty pretty strong memories actually of of, of seafood. Um, nice. Are you yeah. are you passing on that to your own family that that love of seafood? Um, yeah, actually, I. I started in DC. I, I'd done a story where, um, where I was up in Alaska. Um, this is, this is a number of years ago. Um, and I met a, um, a fisherman up there who's, who fishes the Copper River. And uh, as part of our tour, he like took us to the wholesale, mm. uh, salmon place that cool. he sells to. 
and they were they were sell they were buying his salmon for like a buck fifty a pound. Oh my god! And I said, "Oh, Bill, I'll pay you a, a bit more than a fifty." So he said, "He said, well, you have to buy a minimum of fifty pounds." And so I started a, a sustainable seafood buying group in PC, and we have about twenty families. Nice, that's great. You live near Eastern Market, don't you? There's a lot of food loving yeah. folks up there. Yeah, yeah, there are, and you know the neighborhoods has really changed a lot. Um, a lot of restaurants now as well. So, um, and then in the neighborhood, I also have uh, two community gardens. So I'm doing a fair amount of gardening too in my in what little spare time I have. Homesteading in DC, I love it. It's great. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to get into the important work that Fern does. It's it's a an organization that I have grown to admire and depend on so much. And so, you know, you're doing something with Fern that not a lot of, of other outlets are able to do. You're doing all these really in-depth investigative stories on, on agriculture and environmental issues. And, and you're doing this because mainstream media isn't. Can you explain why, why sort of that's happened, why mainstream media can't, you know, cover the same sort of issues and why it's, you know, it's so important to, to keep doing that, to do that kind of research. Yeah. I mean, mainstream media does, you know, does cover these issues. I don't want to take away from it, but there's definitely more room. Um, the reason we started was it was really during, um, the implosion of media around, around 2010 or so. And a lot of environmental journalists were being cut and, you know, uh, magazines were folding, mm-hmm. sections of newspapers were being slimmed down. So obviously that's still underway, but there's been a big shift to more, you know, online um, online work. Um, but we felt there was definitely a need um, for this. There was an appetite among among the audience for the kind of um, work that we do, which, you know, as you mentioned, is in-depth investigating explanatory journalism. Um, and at the same time, we knew that there were a lot of really talented journalists out there mm-hmm. who were being underutilized just because the media model was so broken. So um, with we started with a $10,000 grant, mm-hmm. um, you know, and grew from there. And essentially, all of our work is produced in partnership with other major media companies. Can, so, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about how those partnerships work? Yeah, so we will work. I, I kind of liken us to to a small Hollywood studio. In a sense. <laughs> we come up with ideas. You know, we find writers or writers approach us. We kind of workshop the ideas with them. And then we take, you know, once we have an idea that we think is pretty promising, we'll take it to a much bigger distribution outlet, whether it's, you know, Washington Post or Mother Jones or, you know, Huff Post mm-hmm. or the magazine or you know uh any number of partners um and uh and then we generally you know see if they're interested um uh change the idea if needed to suit their needs uh-huh. um, or 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 um you know tweak the idea to suit their needs and then we 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 kind of go from there so it's really it's really produced in partnership we work we also have a partner editor at the publication. Uh-huh. We really work in concert with with our outlets, but 
the reason we chose this model is we didn't want to just distribute on our own website because we mm -hmm. knew that the distribution would be limited if we were trying to do it on our own. So, you know, we, we go to, you know, we take a story to the Washington Post and it has like, you know, way more readers than we Absolutely. can ever, uh, So. It, it, is it easy to find writers at these different outlets who who know enough about agriculture and environmental issues to be able to report on it to ask the right questions? Yeah, well, at the outlets, we're really working with editors, so our writers are pretty are almost exclusively freelancers. Mm -hmm. so they're, they're, the writers are really specialists in these particular issues, um, and um, you know whether it's a Paul Greenberg on you know seafood, right. It's a guy like Mark Shapiro who did, who's done, doing some really wonderful work on seeds. Um, he did a story with us. Um, you know, Elizabeth Royd is a really great environmental journalist. So, you know, sh they really know these stories. And when we take it to the outlet, um, you know, we're basically assuring them that we have a really top-notch writer, mm -hmm. you know, reporter. Um, and what they bring to the table is, you know, their their own editorial focus as well as, um, you know, as well as distribution. So sure. um, we have worked with a couple of reporters within publications, but that's pretty rare for us. Um, you, you mentioned the Washington Post before. And, uh, you know, do you feel like editors are receptive to these issues and, and wanting to work with you? Or has it been a struggle with some publications? Um. Yeah, it's been a struggle, uh, but as we have grown, I mean, we've worked with, I think, almost 50 different media partners at this point. Um, as we've grown and we've gotten more of a reputation, mm -hmm. it's become easier. Now, publications are approaching us with, you know, saying they're doing a, you know, they're doing a food issue or an environmental issue, and they want us to weigh in on potential story ideas. So that's fantastic. And yeah. and how did this idea, you know, come about? Why why did you think this was important to do? I mean, and and why did you think like people ask me this question? Why did you think you were the person to do it? Oh, well, I didn't think I was the person to do it. I mean, I knew right there were really talented. Uh, journalists out there who were just kind of twiddling their thumbs because they yeah, couldn't get yeah. time to do stories. So, so I knew that, that that was, there was, you know, resources underutilized there. And I knew there was a huge appetite for these, for these kind of stories because, you know, stories about where your food comes from, mm -hmm. how it's produced, the impact of it. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a readership for that. And so sort of, marrying the two the, you know the piece that was missing was was both the funding um to be able to produce these stories but also what was missing um uh which i didn't really appreciate at first was that publications like editors are so overworked that they don't have time to seek out these stories or they don't know the writers like right. they might want to do something on food and agriculture but they don't really know where to start so we kind of you know, this is our area, so, you know, they they can come to us to, for this sort of expertise, and, you know, it takes, like, a huge task off their plates. So so that was something that we found, um, you know, to be to be uh, really attractive about our model. Absolutely. But, but getting back to the point about why, I, you know, I wasn't sure I was the person to do this, I never really thought we'd be what we've become, you mm -hmm. know, I thought kind of launch and 
you know, fund some writers and then I would go off and write some more books on my own. Um, but it's really become, you know, it's a full-time job with, you know, we have seven employees and other, you know, contractors that we work with regularly. So it's kind of a, it's really a, it's really a growing, you know, uh, company. So. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations again on all the sort of momentum and, you know, um, you're, you're receiving all of this great recognition. It's really great to see. And it, it makes me, you know, really proud to, to know you and, and the work that you do. Can, can you talk about, you know, you've been writing about these issues for a long time. The, the book Organic Inc. was, you know, in 2006 and things have changed so much sort of in the, in the food sector since then. And, 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 uh, you know, obviously in the organic sector. Can you talk about how things have changed from your perspective since you first wrote that book? Yeah, it was interesting because when I wrote that book, my book and, um, Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma came out the same year. And I thought interest in that topic was kind of peaking. And Little did you know. <laughs> I know it was barely beginning. And if anything, you know, my book was like too early. So, um, but uh, it has changed a dramatic, uh, in, in really dramatic ways. And in my book, um, you know, what I talked about were sort of the pioneers of the organic food space and more broadly people who are bringing like sustainable models to agriculture um, uh, and really beginning and, and really thinking about, you know, issues such as, you know, soil conservation and, you know, producing food with less, you know, um, toxic impacts mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, even at that point, you know, beginning to think about the climate. But, you know, I think where, you know, what's really surprised me um, now is how much the conversation has been informed by what I would call marginalized voices. Um, in other words, if like if you look at the people I talked to in my book, they were, you know, they were they were for the most part, you know, white men and women. Mm -hmm. These are the people who were sort of building that industry. Um, and going back to the land and that kind of thing. And now I think you hear you, there's much more, um, there's many more uh, diverse voices um, coming into the conversation and I think changing it uh, in really uh, important ways. Sure, now. sure. Yeah. yeah, all those invisible voices who are always there but just weren't heard from, I think, you know, that's a really important point to make. And, and why... Why don't you think they were part of the conversation before? Um, you know, I think I think these worlds could be kind of insular. I think the issues, you know, that that were part of, say, the organic farming world. I mean, if you look back, even like labor standards weren't, you know, mm -hmm. part of it because it was viewed as sort of too complicated, like they were just going to focus on agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that that's valuable. But other, you know. Obviously, issues like, you know, equity and, you know, especially with people who produce the food is like a huge issue. Um, whether that should be part of an organic standard, I mean, I totally get that it's, it's something different, but it wasn't really, uh, you know, even much part of the conversation. Uh, you know, it was recognized, but, but, but people weren't, you know, weren't at the table. 
So I think I think now that that's that's really changing, and I know we'll talk about this later. But I mean, that's you know um, something that overtly we're trying to do um, in a panel discussion we're having on. Uh, well, you know. yeah, let's talk about that now. Like, I think that's a great to, to bring it up now. Do you want to describe this event that you're having on October first? Right, and it's it's in Brooklyn, and it's um, you know it's it's we've we've branded it. It's part of our Fern Talks in Eight series, where we have food and we have speakers. And this was really prompted by the Me Too movement and um, you know the scandals that came out about the restaurant industry. And so, um, um, but at the same time, it's about issues of equity and inclusiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a, par- a panel entirely of women, um, Ashton Berry, who's a bartender and, you know, activist, um, you know, talking about issues of, of people of color. We have Amanda Cohen, who's a, who wrote a really outspoken essay about about women chefs uh, virtually, you know, being ignored until they were, you know, interesting sort of, uh, uh, you know, as as interesting to media because they were being you know, abused. Right. Right. Uh, and we have, we have Ruth Reichel who's been, you know, covering this. Ugh, I love her. <laughs> yeah. Well, for, you know, 30 years. And then Alana McMillan, who's a really interesting person who runs a group called James Beard. And it's a private, um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, dining group, mm-hmm. uh, it's a space for, um, uh, you know, for lesbian and queer women. So it's really, you know, we really, you know, these are, I think, the kind of voices that have been missing. Absolutely. That, trying, to, trying to elevate them. Um, that LGBTQ component, I was talking to Karen Washington a few weeks ago, and that's something that's so important to the work that she does, you know, making sure that, you know, folks who have previously been voiceless, giving them a voice and a safe space to talk about these issues. So, you know, I, I applaud you for, for doing that. Can you let folks know how they can get more information about the October 1st event? Yeah, they can. I mean, they can go to we have a, a website for it called ferntalkseats.com. Um, but they can also get to it at thefern.org. Um, you know, the, and we have um, we have a reception with four chefs who are going to be, be creating food. Um, they're from the Union Square Hospitality Group. Cool. Um, you know, we have, you know, breweries, you know, cider makers. So it's like, it's a whole, and these are all sort of women run enterprises or, you know, Love it. Yeah. So that's kind of the theme. Um, but this is kind of the, I think this is really part of what I would call sort of the next wave in, um, you know, in the food, the, in the broadly defined sort of food space. It's not, you know, it's really not just about agriculture issues and sustainability issues or you know, avoiding toxins in your food. Mm-hmm. Those are still, those are obviously really important, but there's this whole other really interesting uh, dimension of the discussion that I think also embraces much younger people as well. Absolutely. Folks who are really interested in, you know, the story of their food, but also the social sustainability component. And it's great, again, to see Fern really addressing that. I I do want to go back to sort of, you know, the the organic, you know, sort of movement in the United States. And, And you were talking a little bit about, you know, how you're surprised about some of the things that have, 
you know, been, that people are challenging, you know, uh, but have you been surprised about the, the controversy over, uh, you know, hydroponics and aquaponics? Do you have any sort of, um, opinion on, on whether those should be included in the organic standards? How do you feel about that as somebody who's followed, you know, this issue so closely over the years? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for those who aren't versed on this, it's like, there's a lot of greenhouse operations that are springing up um, where where plants are growing either in a soilless medium, medium um, you know, just with, with, you know, added nutrients, you know, and in organic systems, they could be, you know, fish nutrients or, or whatever it is that provide that allows the plant to grow. But there's a huge controversy because the plants aren't grown in the soil mm-hmm. and so really part of an organic system i don't know i seriously see this um whole debate as as sort of very similar to many others that have happened in the organic industry as it's kind of grown up which is um anytime it it tries to um or as it grows rather there's a lot of companies that come in and want to um you know uh create create new business opportunities and they either, you know, and they really take the regulations to their max or they even stretch them, you know, beyond that. Um, I think the, I think the key question is whether, you know, whether these systems are, are sustainable. Mm-hmm. There's some really interesting models, you know, whether it's, you know, fish farms that provide nutrients to, you know, vegetable farms and it's really a closed, you know, it's an entirely closed loop model. Um, and there's also, um, you know, really interesting use of compost to create nutrients that feed, you know, these container, uh, sized plots that grow, um, that grow, uh, plants. Um, and I don't, you know, I think there are some problems with that system. And I, but I think there's also some, um, you know, I think there's also some benefits to it as well. Sure. And, um, and I wouldn't want to like write off an entire, you know, method, you yeah. know, because it doesn't, you know, meet a really strict, you know, definition. And I think the other, you know, the other thing that's happening, sort of the subtext to this, as there are in many parts of the organic industry, is like certain people are benefiting and certain people are being hurt. And, um, you know, there's farmers who have, you know, greenhouses that grow their crops in the soil who are now competing against maybe mm. bigger operations, either, you know, in Canada or, you know, the Southwest or where it is, wherever it is that are using these, these other systems. And so it's an issue of, you know, market share of competition, you know, that comes into it as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's hard to dismiss sort of the opportunity of hydroponics and aquaponics for, you know, creating better access and affordability in urban areas, you know, so I sort of, you know, I don't know where I stand on this issue, because I've seen, you know, companies like Gotham Greens and Aero Farms do a really interesting job, you know, with what with their operations. And I, I kind of want to see them, you know, succeed and, and expand because they are able to produce a really high quality product. And, and in a lot of cases, you know, provide more affordable prices for consumers who, who want those things, but don't always have the opportunity to buy them. 
Yeah, I mean, and I think the key with those is like, what kind of systems are they using? You know, what kind of nutrients are they putting into these? Are they get, are they feeding these plants? You know, how are those nutrients produced? Where are they coming from? You know, are they from sustainable sources? I mean, I saw one operation that had, you know, was using create, creating their own compost. Um, you know, creating uh, compost tea out of that compost. You know, feeding it uh, to the plants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the the compost was entirely from you know local sustainable sources. And to me, that was looked like a pretty good closed loop model. Absolutely, it's hard to criticize for sure. And you know, but others that are using, you know, I think so. Again, it depends on where the nutrients are coming from. You know, how they're produced. You know, all of that. So yeah, it's very case by case. You know, and then the access issues as well. You know, a lot of the urban farming operations. I mean, they're selling you know, these greens to high-end restaurants. So I, I'm not always convinced that, or, mm-hmm. you know, if it does improve access, I think that would be great. Obviously, that has nothing to do with the organic standards, which is not about food access. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if if they can do that, I think, yeah, it would be, you know, totally beneficial. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to step back for a minute and, you know, help our, our listeners get to know you more. Um, you know, I, I'm really interested in your story of how you became a writer. And, you know, during that time, if food was always, you know, something you wanted to write about, or I just am, am really interested in sort of the evolution of how you started reporting. Yeah. So my background was um, as a business journalist. Mm hmm. <clears throat> which is you know, the kind of work I did at Reuters. Um, and it was really in the late mid to late nineties that I saw, I mean, I really got interested in organic food because it was, it was really growing. Uh, my sister was a big devotee. And so I was getting a, you know, um, you know, I was getting her perspective on things. And so I just started to look into it. And at the same time I was getting more interested in food personally. Um, and that kind of relates more to my second book, which is kind of more of a memoir. Right. But, you know, I really enjoy cooking. Um, for me, it's a way of like relaxing after a long day at the computer, you know, being on the phone, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really, it's really a different kind of work. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, I really talk about it as craft work. So that, so the two things laws sort of went in tandem for me, I guess, uh-huh. it's, you know, sort of in my mid, you know, as I was like in my thirties, I guess is when I really started to get into it. So, um, you know, and it's just really grown from there. Um, and I was really fortunate to just be able to continue to be able to write about food. Um, and also, you know, expand my own, own horizons. It, it, and it was interesting. I mentioned that I have um, participating to community gardens on Capitol Hill. I like had no interest in gardening. Mm. What's like not even house plants. Oh, that's surprising yeah. to me. <laughs> and then I had met so many farmers when I wrote Organic Inc. Um, and, you know, really got into their methods, trying to figure out what it is that they did. And my conclusion was, oh, this this isn't that difficult. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I then started, you know, growing my own food. It wasn't, you know, it's it's. I mean, 
it's not that difficult. You just got to really pay a lot of attention and really be on it. Like any, like anything really cooking. I mean, any, anything cooking, writing, the same thing applies. Absolutely. It's all about what you put into it for sure. Yeah. And I had the added advantage of, you know, once I had done that book, I knew farmers in my own region in the mid Atlantic. So, so I would call them for advice. That's and the way to do it. <laughs> Their advice is so good that I joke with them. It's like, I don't have to buy your food anymore at the pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> you helped me grow it so successfully. <laughs> That's awesome. So you mentioned again, uh, the ser- In Search of the Perfect Loaf, your, your second book, and how it's more memoir-based. You traveled around quite a bit to, to sort of um, get the, the ingredients for that book as well, right? Yeah, and that was an interesting story because... Um, you know, I, I started that book, right. I mean, it was in the beginning of like the last really deep recession mm-hmm. and I literally had my freelance work had completely dried up. So I just, I kind of said, well, I'll just do a book proposal and I'm, I don't, you know, nothing is selling everything, you know, the whole economy is terrible. So I'm just going to pitch a book that I really want to do. And I think that, you know, came through in the proposal and, you know, I was able to do this book, which sort of was based on my own passion as a homebred baker that had begun, you know, in sort of mid, mid, mid nineties uh, as well. Um, and I never written about that experience because for me, bread making was like the way I got away from writing uh-huh. and got away from editing and got away from computers, you know, and it was totally tactile, you know, um, uh, work. And, uh, uh, but so this is really my first attempt to try and think about what I had done. And, you know, and in the process I did travel, I, you know, I, I already had known a lot of bakers, but I sort of reached out to them and, and others uh, traveled around the country um, and then went to Europe as well and worked with, with bakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's really yeah, a special experience. Absolutely. With- you know, I had, um, I interviewed Stephen Jones, who I really like a lot from the Bread Lab at, at Washington State. And, you know, the, the love of bread is so universal. And I'm interested in your thoughts about, you know, where where bread in this country is sort of going in terms of, you know, there are more people who are interested and in different kinds of artisanal grains and using them in bread that, you know, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on the whole sort of controversy over gluten? What, what, where do you see sort of the modern bread movement moving? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the gluten-free thing is a whole, whole separate thing, but I, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, people love bread. And, yeah, and, I do. You know, <laughs> I mean, at our local farmers market, somebody sell it, started selling bagels, and like, like they sell out by like eight forty-five in the morning, which is you know ridiculous. It's amazing, yeah. A good so, bagel is hard to find though, even in DC. Yeah. So, yeah, and so so people people do do love bread, and I think the latest wave is actually coming out of like Steve Jones Bread Lab and and other places uh, and other bakers who are really going back to you know, using whole grains, um, you know, exploring locally grown grains and all these different varieties of grains. 
And so I think that's really the most exciting part now. And Mm -hmm. like when I was writing my book, which was like around 2012, um, you know, that wave was kind of starting. There was, you know, a handful of bakers around the country who were milling their own grains. Yeah. And now it's like it seems like every city has has a baker that has their own mill. You know, they're milling their own grains. They're, you know, baking sourdough breads. Um, So it's almost kind of common now. Yeah. Um, This latest wave, which is really exciting to me. Yeah, I'm also excited about this potential for sort of home milling, like Wolfgang Mock and and that model of milling grains in your own house and then baking bread. I think, you know, their hope, I guess, is that in the same way people grind their own coffee, they'll, you know, grind their own grains for for bread. I, I don't know how realistic that is, but it, it's really interesting to me that people are sort of moving in that direction of, of, you know, more home cooking and, and making sure that they know where the ingredients come from and they feel good about them. Yeah. I mean, I mill my own grains and make like bread out of it. Um, it adds a whole nother sort of layer of, um, you know, complexity to the process. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's not, you know, I think the biggest hurdle low is getting people to make their own bread. So yeah, uh, well, it's going to be a minority of people who actually want to do that. Um, and um, and that's okay. I mean, as long as there's great bakers out there for people to support, you know, that's that's great too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to get back to to Fern and and sort of the current state of affairs in journalism right now. And so, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on sort of, you know, you live in Washington, D.C., which is the epicenter of a lot of of chaos right now in terms of, you know, what the news means to people. And and so how, as a news organization, do you combat this sort of era of fake news and and truthiness and and what it means to be writing about issues in a in a balanced and fair way, especially when there's so much controversy around food and agriculture and 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 especially in places like DC. Um. Well, I think the most we can do is you know is write about it, and uh, you know I think. I think like a good example is, you know, the current controversy over, you know, SNAP benefits in the current farm bill. Mm-hmm. So the farm bill is the main vehicle for, for people getting money for food stamps. And it's like 80% of the farm, farm bill spending. And right now Republicans want to cut, cut back on what, what they're known as able-bodied working adults. Um, so that they would have to meet a series of hurdles in order to get benefits. Um, and the projections are that two, two million people will be cut from food stamps for all this if that, if that happens. So, you know, that's an issue that we're writing about almost daily, mm-hmm. certainly weekly, um, as, as the farm bill goes to Congress. And it's really, you know, one of those issues that's under the radar, but I think it's like, it's, it's hugely important. Um, and there's a lot of these, a lot of these issues in our particular corner of the world in, in food and ag and the environment. I mean, I'm just looking at our recent stories. We had another related to um, a payment system that's used at farmers markets mm-hmm. that allows um, low-income people with SNAP benefits to use their SNAP benefits to buy fresh local food. And that payment system was, was going to go under, or it actually did 
uh, did say they were going to close down, um, which would have had access to a huge number of people. Um, uh, luckily, as a result of our story, I mean, a nonprofit stepped in to keep keep the funding going until a new solution was found. Um, but that was all participated precipitated by a decision at the USDA. Um, you know, and there's just, uh, you know, many others. We had, you know, another story on the Bristol Bay mining venture, which everyone thought was, you know, now dead. Mm-hmm. And it's like there may be a chance, you know, there may be a, a, a chance to resurrect it again, you know, in this administration. And yeah. that threats the biggest salmon fishery in Alaska. Um you know, uh, so, you know, we're covering kind of the blow by blow of things. Yeah. But it's also, you know, our issues are not like the Mueller investigation. <laughs> They're not Russia. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so not, you know, they, they don't always get front and center. But um, I think for people who are concerned and interested in these issues, um, and especially the way the current administration is like using deregulation on a number of fronts, you know, what that means to our environment. I mean, those are the kind of stories that we're, that we're writing. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the farm bill. And, you know, I, I, regardless of, of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, these are all issues that we should all be concerned about. We all eat, you know, we all care about. Um, I, I think everyone cares about, you know, making sure that, that, uh, lower income folks have access to, to food and can afford it. But you, you put together, um, am I right? A, a video about the farm bill that's about seven minutes. And so first, I think that's a great contribution, sort of giving people a primer on, on what the farm bill is and, and, you know, the impact that it has on, on all of us, whether again, it, we're Republican or Democrat or somewhere in between. But, you know, it's seven minutes, right? Do you think that's too long for the average American? Or do you think people will, you know, will stick around and watch the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, the, ti- the title of that, of that video, and it's an animation, is, is called What is the Farm Bill and Why Does It Matter? Um, and we tried to, it was really challenging. We tried to pack a lot into those seven minutes. Um, and I hope people do stick around. It's If you know, like, the Vox explainer videos, it's kind of, that was, you know, kind of what we look for as a, as, as a model. Um, and I hope they do, uh, because it's a, it's a, it has a lot of, a lot of parts that work together. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a little bit, you know, to explain, explain what they, what they are. Um, you know, but I think, um, uh, it, you know, I mean, most of our stories are, you know, will take maybe, you know, five or seven minutes to read in some sure. cases, minutes. And, you know, for the internet where people are used to reading a tweet and making up their minds, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a, it's uh, a challenging time for communicators, right? Yeah. But I think we're uh, offering like a level of analysis of explanation of, you know, investigation mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that people seem to want. Um, absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, um, and a lot of these issues are complicated and, and you need to spend a little time with them to really understand what's going on. Well, um, and, and really understand how, how different sides of an issue are framing it, you know? 
Sure. And I think that's why, you know, it's so important that Fern exists. It's so important that, you know, if, you know, an organization like Food Tank exists to help, you know, create the, the opportunity for people to, to get more information and to investigate an issue that they feel strongly about. Um, you know, I, I, I'm interested in hearing two things before we end. What, what are your recommendations for, you know, regular eaters? Uh, you, I know you're a parent about how to sort of process all this, all the conflicting information they hear about food and the environment and agriculture. And two, what is your advice for aspiring journalists? You know, a lot of young folks uh, listen to to our, you know, they, they come to food tank events, they listen to this podcast. What's your advice for people who want to get into this, the business of writing? Okay, so the first the first one is easy, which what which is, um, um, you know, I, I just I, 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 you know, subscribe to the to the Michael Pollan, Michael Pollan uh, dictum, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, I mean, basically, you know, you want to eat whole foods as much as possible. Like, and, you know, as, you know, if it's like, like if you're eating hummus, it's processed, but you know, that's, you know, that's okay. You could recognize the ingredients. Um, but, you know, eating low on the food chain, in other words, as close to whole food as possible and recognizable, I think that's, you know, that's great. Yeah. Hummus uh, is a major food group for me as well. <laughs> so. yeah. yeah, I had some for lunch. Too. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, you know, and as for journalists, young journalists uh, who want to get in, uh, it's it's tough and it's really frustrating. But, you know, it was really frustrating for me when I was starting mm-hmm. And I remember getting like rejected from numerous publications um, I remember, um, and this is back in the 1980s, I remember not being able to get a job. Mm-hmm. So, um, and in that environment, you just write, uh, you know, as much as you can for whoever you can and use those clips to get to the next rung in the ladder. So um, one thing I will say is that there is an appetite for, uh, for, for good writing and good reporting and so much of what we see on the web is basically a version of blogging, which is just taking what's already been reported and, you know, aggregating it. And um, what we found at Fern, and which isn't like a huge surprise, is anything that's an original, you know, that says something new, that brings you new voices, that um, uh, brings issues to light um, in ways that you haven't uh thought about before um so that's it's really about reporting and thinking not aggregating right absolutely that's, that's kind of the way to go um that said most most entry-level positions are slaw you know are slogging you know and just and just pumping out uh, the copy but um you know which is what i had to do do when i started that so um uh you know so you have to start somewhere Absolutely. Um, and it almost doesn't really matter where you start. You just have to do something that's that's close to the, you know, somehow related to the adventure goal. That's, so that's, 
Yeah, that's really good advice. Thanks for that. But before we end, I just want to give another plug to your website. Can you say it one more time? Yeah, it's thefern.org, and you can see all our work up there. And, and, and the October 1st event, can you give that yeah. URL one more time, too? ferntalkseats.com, and, um, and you should be able to... Uh, and will that be archived for folks? It, will there be a video that they can watch later, or is it you have to yeah. be there in person? We're, we're creating video from the event. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So, and there'll be, um, there should be pretty amazing food there. We, that's the nice thing about our series, The Fern Talks and Eats. It's not, it's not just talks, it's also eats. My favorite <laughs> part. I'd much yeah. rather eat than talk. <laughs> Thank you. And you're doing great work too. Oh, uh, you're sweet. We love your events and we love participating in them. And, you know, you always get really great speakers. And so we're, I'm really honored that you had us on the podcast. Oh, no, we're thrilled that you could do it and that we we could find time to do it with you. We're, we're such big fans of you personally, Sam. I think you know how much I really, really admire you. And, and I'm so impressed and, and proud of the work that Fern is doing. So thanks for being with us today, and, and I'll hope to see you soon. Okay, well, thanks so much. It's great speaking with you. You too, bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. <laughs>